Technology is arguably the most powerful force driving change in the world today. It is, for example, technology that has led to our greatest crisis, climate change. And technology will have to play a big role if we'd have any chance of responding adequately to that crisis. I could have written those lines six months ago, but even since then, things have moved to another level. AI has joined climate change and nuclear war as one of the great existential threats facing humanity. But unless you're one of the handful of super-rich, super-powerful people running tech corporations, what can you do to influence our collective future? A new book encourages us to throw off fatalism, to challenge technological determinism, and instead to learn from history and to see that shaping technology to human purposes is both vital, but also possible. Brought to you by the Forward Institute, you're listening to the show that offers a fresh perspective on how to manage change and lead from the front. That's Forward Vision with your host, Matthew Taylor. I'm delighted to welcome... Daron Asamoglu, who is Professor of Economics. He's a best-selling author of many books, including, Daron, one of my favorites, When Nations Fail. But you're now joint author with Simon Johnson of Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. Daron, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Matthew. It's my pleasure to be here with you. So this is a book which is both incredibly wide-ranging historically, wide-ranging over its subject matter. It's also a very nuanced book, so there's a lot to cover. But I want to start with what you're pushing against. And I think that what you're pushing against is probably two things above all. Intellectually, you're pushing back against technological determinism, and politically, you're pushing back against the power of big tech. Is that right? Absolutely. You've got it exactly right. And I would add to that, we're also pushing against a sort of blind techno-optimism that says that as long as we keep on making progress in inventing new widgets and algorithms and tools, ultimately, we're all going to benefit almost automatically. We don't need to be too concerned because the gales of technological ingenuity will lift us all up. And this triumvirate of the political power of large companies and especially big tech companies, techno-optimism, and plus the sort of fatalism that we're on a path that cannot be altered, I think they really pacify us and make us accept whatever is dished out to us by the largest tech companies. And why do you think it is that we are so susceptible to technological determinism, technological utopianism. I interviewed someone else, another author on this podcast recently. She talked about techno-chauvinism. Why are we so susceptible to this stuff? We always have a tendency to see the major events that have impacted us as inevitable. History had to happen a particular way. Technological history had to happen a particular way. And, you know, when it comes to technology, we really need to have two conflicting ideas in our minds at the same time. All of us in the West and most people around the world are incredibly fortunate to be living at the beginning of the 21st century, say, relative to being alive at the beginning of the 18th century. 
we live much more comfortable, much healthier, much more prosperous lives. And a lot of that is thanks to industrial technology, the process of industrial revolution that started in Britain sometime in the middle of the 18th century. So we are hugely thankful to technological progress. But that needs to be combined with the realization that there was nothing automatic about this, that there were many people who were the losers out of technological progress for about 100 years, and there were major institutional and technological adjustments that had to be made throughout the 19th century and throughout the 20th century so that broad shared prosperity emerged out of these technological developments. This is one of the things I really enjoyed about the book is that it is extremely broad ranging, but yet it has a kind of specificity to it in the sense that let's take one element of that. You want to be very specific about the characteristics of technologies that tend to increase human welfare. And this is something that you illustrate through historical examples. So take us through these core characteristics of those technologies that have enhanced human welfare. Well, thank you, Matthew. That's really the heart of the book. And we make the arguments that there are two critical pillars to the types of technological progress or the types of organization that are responsible for broadly shared prosperity. First, you need to make sure that new technologies don't just automate and sideline labor, but they increase humans' contribution to the production process. And second, they need to be embedded in an institutional setup in which labor has sufficient voice and power such that it can share some of those benefits. And throughout history, we see a struggle over both elements. There were periods in which most technological energy went towards automation. And what that meant is that workers were sidelined. They were not critical for the production process. And as a result, they weren't benefiting from the advances. And there are many, many other periods when really transformative technologies emerge. For example, the cotton gin in the US South. But the workers who were critical for that type of production, enslaved black workers in cotton plantations, did not get any of the benefits because they did not have political power and the institutional basis of society then was about repressing enslaved people. So these two pillars are critical and they are no less critical today. Yeah, and that takes me to a point that occurs at many moments in the book. And, and I think I grasp it, but I'd like you to expand on it because it is a very important point. And this is the point about whether technology increases marginal human productivity or merely automates human activity. And this seems like a, a relatively small distinction, but for you, it's all important, yeah? Absolutely. And thank you for bringing it up. We wrote this book for a broad audience and we made our best to stay away from jargon. But there was one critical concept that we felt compelled, and that's the one that you just highlighted, marginal productivity of labor. And I try to avoid that in my previous answer by saying human contribution to productivity. But I think it is absolutely central to dwell on it. And to do that, let me actually give the example that we also mention in the book, the sort of often made statement that the future factory will have two employees, a man and a dog. The man is there to feed the dog and the dog is there to make sure that the man doesn't touch the equipment dystopian or utopian, depending on who you are. But imagine such a factory 
the productivity of that factory is very high. It's producing a lot of widgets. And if you say, what's the average productivity of labor in that factory? It's huge because there's a lot of output and there's only one employee or if, two if you count the dog. But the marginal productivity of the human, that's the joke, is nil. He's just there to feed the dog and you could easily get rid of both the dog and the man. So if that's the type of factory that we're aiming for, and with AI, there is a danger we may be going there, then there is no reason for any employer to demand much labor or pay them very high wages. And that is a threat. And it's not just a distributional threat, what we try to argue in the book. It is actually pretty bad for overall productivity as well, because human ingenuity is missed. That person there feeding the dog could actually have a lot of creative ideas. He could be engaged in design, creation of new products. But no, he's just feeding the dog. So it's both a distributional challenge and one that actually holds back economic growth. And we argue in the book, it's also a democratic challenge. So excuse me, Daron, but I want to be absolutely clear about this, particularly for non-economists who are listening. So in your example, the point is that if you bring in another human being, the marginal human being, to that factory, they will actually halve the human productivity and they won't add any value. You'd contrast that, and you can maybe give us some examples, with a technology which enhances human skills such that when it's applied, were you to bring another human being into that workplace, not only would they be more productive, but also they would generate more value. Is that right? 100%. So imagine that you have a barber shop and you bring another barber, he would cut more hair and increase your productivity. Now, imagine that we give that person better tools, better designs, more information about what the current styles are, better scissors, better clippers. That person's productivity is higher, and so is his or her marginal productivity, meaning what he or she can do with those tools, with his or her hours of work. So that's critical. And throughout history, we see examples where the emphasis has been on automation, something like that modern factory. And we see great examples, for example, the Ford Motor Company at the beginning of the 20th century, where you have a lot of new machinery, you have some automation, you have the assembly line emerging. But at the same time, workers are central to the production process. They're doing a lot of technical tasks. They're operating the machinery. They're doing inspection, maintenance, design. They're also doing a lot of engineering and back office tasks. The whole central element of the mass production system that emerged in the first quarter of the 20th century in the United States and then spread throughout the world is that human labor is becoming more productive. Is there, Darren, a kind of different argument? So there's a kind of microeconomic argument, which is the one that you've articulated, which suggests that some technologies enhance human welfare and others don't. But there's a macro argument surely, which says, well, okay, maybe it is the case that in the manufacturing sector, for example, or mining or whatever, we can automate. And perhaps that doesn't increase marginal human productivity, but it liberates people from jobs that aren't particularly interesting or great to do. And then they can go off and retrain and maybe become barbers or opera singers or masseurs or whatever. So even if 
automation isn't great for the people directly affected by it. It's good for wider society. Oh, thank you, Matthew, for raising that issue. And that helps me clarify two important points. First of all, in my work, a lot of it with Pascual Restrepo and in this book with Simon Johnson, I do not argue against automation. Automation is critical. Without automation, we would not have been able to create the kind of abundance that we started building in the 20th century. And indeed, automation has eliminated some of the most routine, dangerous, physically difficult tasks already, and it can do more. What we argue against is an unbalanced portfolio of innovations that just automates and does not create the tools for new jobs and new tasks for workers. And the example you gave is brilliant. And many economists also debate this issue. One argument would be, so what's the problem? We automate jobs in agriculture, in manufacturing, and then people will get jobs as hairdressers or massage therapists or in other service occupations, and everything will be fine. The problem with that is that unless we make the right investments in increasing these workers' productivity in those new sectors, they will do so by getting lower wages. So automation will push them out of their current jobs, but it will not automatically generate other good jobs for them. And that's exactly what happened in the U.S. economy, for example, over the last four decades. We've seen a lot of automation and not enough of the countervailing type of innovation to increase human productivity or worker marginal productivity. Contrast that, for example, with the mechanization of agriculture that went on from the middle of the 19th century to about 1940s. There was a huge amount of labor freed from agriculture, about 50% of the U.S. workforce. But at the same time, we invented a tremendous number of new goods, services, tasks in other sectors to gainfully employ and pay very high wages to these workers. It's just that second step that's missing. And this is where I think, I think the popular view, perhaps, is that in a sense, technology does whatever technology can do, and we cannot stand in the way of it. And it has to be what it has to be because it's driven by what's technologically possible. And then the consequences of technological change as to whether or not they benefit human beings, whether or not they make the world fairer or better, that that's to do with completely different policies. That's to do with macroeconomics. That's to do with I don't know, fiscal policy or whatever. I think you want to argue that you do need to look at the technology harder, that you've got to get away from this idea that there's, as it were, all we do is do what the technology dictates to us or what the people who control the technology dictate to us and then clear up the mess or try to make the most of the benefits in a different kind of suite of policies. You want to say, no, actually, attending to the nature of the technology, shaping the nature of the technology is absolutely essential. Again, 100% right. And what you identified and very nicely summarized is not just the popular view. It's actually a view that's propagated by some or many economists. You cannot stand in the way of technology. It has its own path. As the former editor of The Wired magazine wrote in the title of one of his books, 
what technology wants. There is a clear sense in which technology has a very well-defined direction. You cannot stand in it away. And it would be inadvisable to try to because ultimately we're all going to be the beneficiaries of it. That's why I mentioned techno-fundamentalism and techno-optimism in the introductory comments. And then finally, if you push people on those two pillars, they will say, oh, well, fine, perhaps techno-optimism needs to be qualified, but then we can come in with some policies, for example, universal basic income, in order to make sure that the damages are not too high. And I think every part of this conceptual edifice is suspect. There isn't a predetermined, preordained direction of technology. And that's really the key argument of the book. Techno-optimism is not automatically warranted. We've been beneficiaries of technology, but there is no guarantee that's going to be a smooth process, nor are we destined to go to sort of a destination where we're all going to benefit. And no, Exposed redistribution cannot do everything. I think we have to really think about the microeconomic of technology and the politics of technology and say, well, is this the right path? Can we redirect technological change? And these are really the key elements of our conceptual framework. And I would add to that, I think, that even if it were to be the case that ultimately technology would benefit humanity, if we have to go through hell to get there, it's not an acceptable price to pay, and nor is it politically feasible. I mean, you know, as Keynes said, in the long run, we're all dead. So let's focus a little bit more on what we control in the short to medium term. And I say that because you write in the book, for example, about what I think is sometimes called amongst English historians and economists, the Engels pause. That is the period between industrialization in Britain and the point at which it actually started to lead to people having a higher cost of living. Now, one of the things I've argued in the past is you could kind of get away with that in the early 19th century because there wasn't democracy. And if you rose up, you would get shot as the Chartists were, for example. The idea in modern society that a leader could come along and say to us, look, folks, in 50 years, this technology is going to be fabulous for your grandchildren, but you're going to have to go through a load of shit between now and then. <laughs> it's not a very attractive political manifesto. So whether or not, in a sense, the techno-utopians are right about the very, very long term isn't really the issue, because we have got to live with this technology now. And if it doesn't benefit people now, well, we know what happens. People become angry, they become disillusioned, they turn to various forms of populism and extremism. Absolutely, 100%. And it's not warranted because we don't have to put up with this damage in the short run. But you're 100% right. Kinds of short, medium, longish term costs that the British working classes suffered starting around 1750 are horrendous. Almost 100 years of stagnant real incomes, worse health outcomes, much less autonomy, much worse working conditions, longer working days, much worse living conditions in their houses. That would be unacceptable. But I emphasize that these shouldn't even be thought as transition costs, because as soon as you start talking of transition costs, there is the implicit message that this is a definite transition, that again, there are these automatic forces that will get us out of this mess. And even that I'm not convinced of. At the end of the day, there was nothing automatic about 
the turnaround in the English-British working classes conditions. There was democratic revolution. Britain became much more democratic in the process of this, and that was not a peaceful process. You mentioned the Chartists. The Chartists are amazing. I mean, they went out of their way to make very reasonable demands. They collected more than 3 million signatures. I mean, imagine in 1840s collecting 3 million signatures, and then in return, they were all put in jail. British trade unions were heavily prosecuted. They became legal. And the direction of technological change altered quite significantly in the second half of the 19th century. So there was a complete turnaround in terms of the pillars of shared prosperity that I mentioned. And there was nothing automatic about that. In fact, you may ask, why is your book so historical? The reason is because we want to argue against the rhetorical question that we sometimes get. Is this time different? Are you saying that in the past we've benefited all, everything was hunky-dory with technologies and is this something different about AI? And our answer is no. Throughout history, we've had these struggles. Throughout history, we've had many, many, many people suffered because they didn't have political voice because technology went against them. And there wasn't anything automatic then and there is nothing automatic now. But it seems to me that there is an aspect of this that is certainly a challenge to the techno-utopians. But I wonder whether, Darren, it's a challenge also for you in the sense that you want to try to shape technology. And that is unpredictability. So nobody, I don't think, predicted when the internet burst onto the scene that it would end up injecting itself into our lives most completely through the phenomenon of social media. That's not what the internet pioneers thought, you know, all sorts of purposes that the internet might have, but nobody really predicted the social media, which now kind of dominates our lives. Equally, I think we can be pretty clear, can't we, that in total, social media has been bad for human beings. Obviously, there are some things that are good about it, but when you toss up the negatives, political polarization, its impact on people's mental health and well-being, all sorts of other elements to it that are problematic. But in a sense, we can't conceivably put it back in the bottle. So is this unpredictability element of technology, is that a challenge not just to the techno enthusiasts, but also to people like yourself who would like greater social control of technology? Well, first of all, you're not going to get any counter arguments from me about social media having had horrendous effects. Completely agreed on that. But let me amplify the points that you've made, which are very much on target. So even if you agree with me that there is nothing preordained about the path of technology, you may still have doubts about our ability to shape that path. So you could believe that there is a tremendous variety of different directions we can go in, but it's all at the individual entrepreneurial level, at the decentralized level, and any type of societal or government inducement to that is going to backfire or is going to be ineffective. Even that I would take as a victory, because admitting that there are all of these different possibilities would enrich the way we think about technology. But there is also evidence that the right types of policies could shape the future path in important ways. And I think there you have to distinguish between individual goods, widgets, techniques, 
algorithms being unpredictable, 100%, versus the broad area where we're putting our effort being unpredictable. So nobody could have foreseen Facebook in the 1990s. And we don't know what new tasks and new jobs and new technologies are going to come up in 2030. But the Department of Defense and the United States throughout the second half of the 20th century had tremendous effect on the direction of technology, some good, some bad, because they supported broad suites of technologies in aeroestro, weapons, nanotechnology, computer technology. And over the last 15 years, a small amount of government inducement and societal pressure has led to a complete redirection of energy technologies away from fossil fuels, much more towards renewable. The cost of producing electricity using wind and solar power declined by about tenfold over the last 15 years. That's a tremendous redirection of technology. Could people in the 2010s predicted what types of solar panels we would have and which sorts of patterns we would get for wind? No. But I think you don't need that predictability to say that if we put more resources into renewables, we're going to get more renewables rather than fossil fuels. That's the level of redirection we're talking about here. Just to go back to the example of social media, you write in the book, and of course, it's a story that I'd read before about the critical moment when the founders of Google needed investment and the investment came from a backer who said, I'll give you money, but in order to give you money, you're going to have to abandon your public commitment not to use your search engine for advertising purposes because that's the way we're going to make money. So in the end, in order for Google to expand, it had to use its search engine as a tool for advertising. Now, the reason I think that's a very significant moment is something which you don't talk about in the book, and it's, it's very unfair to criticize you for things you don't talk about in the book because you could talk about so much, but that is the nature of modern capitalism. And what I mean by that is the separation of investment from the stewardship of the company, that many of these tech companies, and indeed much of modern capitalism, the power lies with the investor. And the investor is itself often an algorithm. So the investor is not really interested in the morality, the ethics, the purpose of the company. What they're interested in is the ability of the company to generate profits. And what this leads to, therefore, is it leads to businesses which are simply there to maximize money. They're not there because, as it were, they're owned by people who have a pride in the things that they're producing, what they're doing, or, or in the end, investors don't really care about the reputation of those companies, particularly if it doesn't affect the bottom line. So is an element of what's going on that it's not just that, that technological power lies in private hands, generally speaking, and therefore we need better kind of regulation of that, but it lies in the hands ultimately of anonymous investors rather than people who actually run the company. There is some truth to what you're saying, but first of all, I don't like talking of capitalism because it creates the impression that there is a monolithic capitalism. There are many different ways of organizing market incentives. There are many different ways of creating status, creating incentives for business people. The reason why we spend quite a bit of time in the book talking about Milton Friedman's idea that 
the social responsibility of business should be making profits and that alone is precisely because it was part of a redirection of the priorities of technological leaders and business leaders away from more socially responsible ways of developing their products, making innovations, making choices. And in the tech sector, what you identify is very much entangled with venture capital. Venture capital plays that role of pushing you more and more into becoming bigger and bigger. And if you become bigger and bigger, the most open way for you to monetize your product is through advertisement. But those are all choices that we have made in the institutions and in the way that we have organized the market economy. We could have made different choices and individual innovators could make different choices. I don't want to absolve people who say, oh, well, I'm going to completely abrogate my responsibility to be responsible because there are these market forces. To me, another tremendous online platform that has as much value as Google in terms of its social good is Wikipedia. And Wikipedia did not go towards venture capital. It does not monetize itself via the individualized ads. It doesn't collect tremendous amount of data. It does not exploit people's emotions. It has a different model and that's feasible as well. So I think there are many things that are feasible but you're right in putting your finger on two things. One is that there were many critical moments like Google's origin story or social media's origin story when many people who are very smart thought in the early 2000s that social media was going to be a democratizing influence. They weren't completely wrong. That possibility was there. And then many influential people, such as Mark Zuckerberg, Sheryl Sandberg, made choices that went in a completely different direction. So it's those choices that we have to question. And even more deeply, we have to question the institution that enable these choices, even encourage these choices. The book, I think, was first published this year, but things move so quickly, don't they, Daron, that, as I said at the beginning, the debate about AI, I think in the book, you talk a bit about people underestimating the kind of dangers of AI. Well, that certainly isn't the case now. So I, I want to ask you, what do you make of this sudden upsurge in kind of existential panic about AI. And I wonder where you lie in the debate between those who think it's real and that we should understand the scale of the challenge and threat to us now versus another school of thought that says, yeah, this is just a smokescreen. This talk of AI taking over the world is distracting us from what is actually happening with real AI now. And that's what we should be talking more about. Well, I'm firmly in the second camp, but let me say, yes, the world is moving so fast, except the publishing world. Our book was <laughs> published in May of this year, but actually it was written in 2022. So before ChatGPT came on the scene, but while doing the last touches on the page proofs, we looked at what we wrote on AI and we didn't see any reason for changing it. ChatGPT, GPT-4, they're amazing. They really show the potential of this technology. I am convinced that generative AI is both impressive and can be very useful to humans if it's used correctly. But yes, 100%. Right now, AI is dominated by hype. And I see that talk of existential risk as part of that hype. It feeds into this narrative that these are amazing technologies. And the only thing we have to be afraid of is that they are too good. No, I think 
First of all, there are many limitations to these technologies. Humans still are critical. And if we sideline the workers, the citizens, that's going to be the biggest loss. And secondly, there are many mundane things that these technologies are doing. Automating work excessively, collecting a huge amount of data, changing our political discourse. Those are the problems we should be focusing on. Talk of existential risk pacifies us in the same way that extreme techno-optimism does. Yes, I think that's where I would land in this debate, although I do vacillate. And actually, I still see many examples of what one author a few years ago called FAUX, F-A-U-X, which is that something claims to be automated. And all that's really happening is the work that used to be done by, I don't know, a travel agent or a bank, it now has to be done by the poor citizen who has to try to make these unwieldy systems work for them. But that's a, a different topic. At the end of the book, Daron, you have a chapter which is, in a sense, your kind of manifesto. Lots of really interesting, important stuff in there. Pull out a couple of what you see as the most essential things in terms of public policy if we are to try to ensure that technology serves human ends. Well, let me mention three quickly. Yes, you are right, Matthew, we have several. And the spirit of that is because we don't know which ones are going to work. We have to experiment with these different policies. But the three that I'll mention, I think, are all very important. First, I think we have to change our tax system. Right now, in most industrialized nations, we subsidize capital with tax labor, and that creates an artificial inducement for companies to automate because they are getting a subsidy, implicit subsidy from the government when they use machines instead of labor. A more symmetric, fair, balanced tax system is both good for how we use technology and better for workers. Second, I think many of the worst types of practices in online platforms where there's going to be much more activity with GPTs comes from the digital ad-based model which not only leads to the types of issues that you've identified, emotional outrage, mental health problems, extremism, misinformation, disinformation, but it also shuts down alternative business models. It's very difficult to enter into the social media space today with a subscription model. So we advocate significant digital ad taxes, meaning that if you are monetizing yourself by sending these individuals digital ads, you actually pay taxes on them. Finally, I think the most important element of our conceptual framework is that we have to use these new digital technologies in a way that's more human complementary, that empowers workers, that empowers citizens. So we think that the government, perhaps through a National Institute of Computing, has to be more engaged in the regulation and subsidies to creative technologies that empower workers and citizens. So it's the same sort of idea that NIH or the NSF in the United States play where they channel public funding towards more socially beneficial types of innovations. Great. Yeah. And as you say, that's amongst many ideas in the book. I've got a final question, Daron, which I hope is not unfair. This podcast is sponsored by a wonderful organization, the Ford Institute, that does work on ethical leadership. And therefore, I think many of our listeners are leaders or future leaders, if you're a leader of an organization, you are pretty consistently invited by various people within your organization or salespeople or whatever to undertake constant technological change, including automation. I wonder whether you've got any advice 
for leaders as they sit in their office and someone comes in and says, oh, look, there's this new way of doing things, this new way of speeding things up, this new way of saving money, this new way of making our workers more productive. What are the kinds of questions you think leaders should ask when they're offered these technological solutions? That's a great question. There are many things, but let me be brief. And let me go back to the brief discussion you and I had about capitalism and the nature of capitalism. I think there are two different ways in which business leaders could approach their workforces and their organizations in a market economy. In one, you think of labor, your employees, as a cost. The more you eliminate them, the better, because you're reducing a very significant part of your cost. The second is you think of them as a resource. What you want to do is amplify their capabilities, get the most out of them while also enriching their commitment to your organization. I think both of them are consistent with the way that the market economy functions. Of course, different institutions may encourage one versus the other. But I am convinced that the latter, where you recognize the contribution of your human employees to your organization, is both better for your organization's long-term longevity and it has much, much better social implications in terms of income distribution, in terms of enriching people's work lives. So that's the thing that I generally recommend to people. Think of your workers as a critical resource. Well, Daron, thank you so much for the book and so much for joining me. Thank you, Matthew. It was my pleasure. It's been fascinating reading power and progress, and I can strongly recommend it. But because I've read a lot about these issues, indeed, we've often discussed them on this program, there wasn't that much that was entirely new to me, but there is something very powerful about bringing it all together. It's that historical sweep and range that really helps us to grasp how high the stakes are. And perhaps, say this in a country that soon is approaching a general election, how vital it is that our leaders are tested against their understanding of technology and their capability and willingness to make the machines and their controllers serve us rather than us end up slaves to them. Goodbye. The Forward Institute is a non-profit organisation with the mission of building a movement for responsible leadership. With a network of global business leaders, the Forward Institute facilitates cross-sector learning, creating space for challenging conversations and exploring the very real dilemmas leaders face. For more information, visit forward.institute.